0: Good afternoon. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. This comes from Malachi chapter 2, 10 through 16, and it says this. Have we all not one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off the tents of Jacob and any descendant of any man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. In this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it as favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking, godly offspring? So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. The word of God for the people of God. Amen.
1: You may be seated. Well, good afternoon. I hope that y'all are doing well. My name is Marco, and I serve as the preaching pastor here at Storehouse McKellen. It's a joy to be with you. In the event that you did not catch Andrew, you're just walking in, we're going to find ourselves this afternoon in Malachi chapter 2. We're looking at verses... 10 through 16 and while you open or load your bible one quick update or announcement for you if you are new we'd love to hang out with you we'd love the opportunity to pray for you and so in the pews along with uh the the connect desk in the foyer we have these connect cards i would invite you to fill one out so that we could either connect or again get the opportunity to pray for you um with that being said let's dig Let's dig into our time, because if, if you got to hear the scripture reading, got some heavy stuff to talk about today, again. Um, yeah, let's just do this. All right, here we go. On occasion, my wife and I uh, will watch this TV reality show, I think it's called uh, Married at First Sight, and from what I understand... The objective of the show is for this panel of experts to pair individuals together based on a set of questions that they ask them and a series of personality tests, and the attraction of the show comes as these two individuals meet for the very first time, and the very first time that they are meeting is on their wedding day. It is a show, if I'm honest, that is both frustrating and futile, but there are some uh, fascinations that come with it. For instance, once these individuals are married, uh, they then have a number of months to truly decide whether or not they'd like to stay married or get a divorce. And they call it Decision Day, because apparently the first one didn't count. And so they're building up to Decision Day. And throughout these months, the cameras follow them on everything from special occasions to everyday life as they navigate getting to know one another uh, as husband and wife. And there are two things that stand out to me in the show. Uh, The first is that once they're married, the, the first thing that stands out is the difficulty in letting go of their individualism in marriage. The second thing is that though they're excited to be married, this entire process, or they view this entire process as a contract, and sometimes they will even use that language, I suppose positively, but then they also use that language in the negative sense when they start threatening one another, right? Uh, Decision day's coming up, so you know, we're not gonna make it anyway, right? Like there's these threats that they make, but it's reality TV, it's whatever, right? But here's what stands out about that second part, that they see it as a contract, not as a covenant. The Christians or the individuals who profess to be Christians on this show use that same language, right? That this is ultimately, or they view it as a contract because we're building up to decision day or what they call decision day. In our text today, God accuses Israel of something similar. Israel's apathy has led to an increase in their individualism, which has led to faithlessness, and their apathy has led them to forget about their covenant with God, one another, and their families. Yet, in the midst of all of this, in the midst of everything that Israel has been doing, the book of Malachi reminds us of a God who, as a perfect and loving father, is persistent, in the pursuit of his children. And what we're going to see this afternoon is that you and I are no different than Israel because you and I are sinners in need of God's grace. The kind of grace that meets our deepest need, the kind of grace that is transformational. And so here's your main idea for our time because we're going to we're going to jump into this text. God's faithfulness in our faithlessness is a testimony of his mercy and grace. God's faithfulness in the midst of our faithlessness is a testimony of his mercy and his grace. Let's pray and then we'll, we'll dig in. God, we begin by praising you for your grace and our salvation and sending Jesus To die for us in our place and for our sin and reconciling us to you. We praise you for your grace. God, in addition to that, we praise you for the grace that you give us in this gathering where we get to sing songs together that exalt your name and your work and your promises and do not just stir our hearts but remind us of your goodness. And finally, Lord, I pray that you would give us more grace this afternoon in order to receive your word. And so we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we're going to look at three sections this afternoon, and we're going to park in the middle one, probably for the longest time. We're going to look at faithless hearts, we're going to look at forgotten covenants, and finally, a faithful savior. Once more, faithless hearts, forgetful covenants, or forgotten covenants, let's say it that way, and then a faithful Savior. The first one we're going to examine in verses 10 through uh, 13. And so before we dig into this passage, just giving you a little bit of insight as to where we're going, but before we dig into this passage, I want to give you a preface. In this sermon, we're going to look at two theological principles, that of Christians marrying non-Christians, And divorce. And with that being said, there's a few things you need to know. The first one is that though these two things are mentioned in this text, this sermon is not necessarily a sermon about those two topics. The main subject here in Malachi 2 is Israel's faithlessness toward God and one another. God uses these two examples to prove their faithlessness. We'll dig into that in a minute. The second thing I want you to know is that though we're going to touch on those subjects in this sermon, I won't be covering them in total depth because of time. But rest assured, you can do two things. All right? Number one, read your Bible. That would be magnificent so that you would learn more about what God has to say about these two things. The second thing I would encourage you to do is begin reading 1 Corinthians. At the start of the year, we're going to open up with 1 Corinthians, and Paul, to this young church, speaks on these two subjects at length. So if you want to be doing some reading, which you should be, start 1 Corinthians. Right. With all that being said... Let's get into the text. In this section, this is God's third accusation toward Israel. If you remember, the book of Malachi is structured where God accuses Israel of their sin, and then Israel challenges that accusation, and then God provides the proof of his accusation toward Israel. And so in verse 10, God begins by asking two rhetorical questions. Here's what he says Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? What God is reminding them by by way of rhetorical question is that he is Israel's father. He has chosen Israel, he has rescued Israel, he has adopted Israel as his children. Additionally, he reminds them that he is the creator of all. He created Israel, he created us, he created everything for his glory and ultimately our good. So these are two rhetorical questions by way, uh, or he's reminding them by way of rhetorical questions of who he is and what he has done for them. This is also seen in Exodus 4 where God says, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn Son, okay? So those are the two rhetorical questions that he opens up with, and then he presents the accusation in the form of a third question. And so here's what he writes, or here's what he says. Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. All right, here it is. The accusation from God toward Israel is not only are they faithless in their covenant toward him, in other words, their hearts are not inclined toward God, their apathy is consuming them, they are not walking with the Lord, they are faithless toward him. That's the first one. The second one is that they are faithless toward one another, meaning that they don't actually care for one another. They don't actually love one another. They don't actually serve or pray for one another. They don't direct one another to the character of God. They don't confess sin to one another. And that's why God is unpacking that they are faithless and an abomination. Now, to give you a little bit of... Uh, understanding. When you read Judah, right, when you read Judah, God is referencing Israel. This goes back to the time before their captivity when Israel was split into two kingdoms. You got the North Kingdom, you got the South Kingdom, and one was called Israel and the other one was Judah. Here, after the post-captivity era, post-exile era, they're all together. So God sometimes calls them Judah. He's referring to Israel, his chosen people. In summary, God's accusation is that Israel has been faithless toward him and Israel has been faithless toward one another. We're going to continue to distill, in other words, pull as much as we can from this text before we apply it to ourselves. But the first thing I do want you to notice is that the language that he's using, not only have you been faithless toward me, you are faithless toward one another in this covenant. For us as the church, did you know that? Did you know that not only are we in covenant with God, but we are, as a result, in a covenantal relationship with one another as a body? There's no solo Christian. There's no churchless Christian. There's a reason the Apostle Paul refers to the church as a body. In Romans 12, he says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Coming back to Malachi too. Here's what you need to know about that accusation. The faithlessness of Israel toward God and one another is a byproduct of their apathy, of their anger, their frustration, their bitterness. See, as we've been walking through Malachi, this posture of Israel didn't happen overnight, but over time. You and I are no different. We, like Israel, are sinners. And our faithlessness in our relationship with God and one another always begins with what rules and reigns in our hearts apart Jesus. That's where it always begins. Faithlessness is the byproduct of a heart won over by something apart from God. Let's keep unpacking what's going on in this text. Now let's look at forgotten covenants. This is the second half of verse 11 all the way through 15. So God continues, Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. At this point, God is now presenting... What is going on? In other words, I'm about to bring you, what he's doing, not me, right? (laughs) I'm about to bring you proof of your sin. And what I want you to take a quick note of is actually in verse 14. In verse 14, I want you to notice how Israel responds, right? God says, but you say, why does he not? It's referring to offering. My point here is that throughout the entire book, this is the way in which Israel challenges God's claims, Chapter one, I have loved you. How have you loved us? Chapter two, your worship is worthless. How has it been worthless, right? They're coming from a place of apathetic anger and bitterness and frustration. It's no different here, where he's beginning to provide proof of their faithlessness. You and I tend to respond the exact same way when the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin right? When the Holy Spirit drops that conviction, how? How is this on me, Lord? How is this something that I got to deal with? How, why is it always me that has to move forward on this? It's the same way. So the Lord gives proof of his accusation. First, Judah, or Israel, has been marrying the daughter of a foreign god. In other words, Israelite men are marrying non-Israelite women. They're marrying women outside of the covenant community right? Bringing it back to us, these are Christians marrying non-Christians, okay? Here's the second accusation, second half of verse 14. Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, verse 15. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. So the second accusation is that Israelite men are divorcing. They're leaving their wives and marrying or pursuing other women outside of the covenant community. And so here's what's going down because the argument can be made. What's the big deal with these dudes marrying other women outside of Israel, all right? Here we go. Number one, the covenant of marriage is a reflection of the covenant God has made with Israel. Listen, whether you're married or not, what you believe about God shapes your marriage, period, By these men showing faithlessness in their marriages or pursuing women outside of the covenant community, they are demonstrating faithlessness toward God himself. See, for these individuals, their motivator wasn't God's love for them. In other words, God has assured them that he loves them, and therefore they are so secure in his love uh, for them that that motivates them to love their wives or to love their families. No, it's not, that's not the motivator. Rather, it's sinful hearts and horrible logic. We could even say it is dumb logic because I know there's kids in here. All right, so dumb logic. Just like the priests that we looked at last week and how they knew what God expected of them, this too was something that Israel was clearly aware of. Deuteronomy 7, here's what God says. You shall not intermarry with them. Speaking of those outside of the covenant faith, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, For, it's another word for because, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. It's not like they didn't know. See, God's reasoning for these accusations, God's reasoning is not only because their their pursuit of these women is a reflection of their hearts toward him, which is faithlessness, but consequently... God is saying that by doing this, by them pursuing these women, divorcing their wives and pursuing this women or pursuing women outside of the covenant faith, he's saying by doing this, by marrying someone who does not worship him, who does not know him, who does not know the God of the Bible, they will drive them away from him. At some point, they will drive him or they will drive them further away from him. One of the biggest examples of this is King Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 8. Now, if you don't know anything about King Sully, right? King Sully uh, talked with God. God approached him, and I'm, this is a big paraphrase. God approaches him because he is so pleased with him and asks him the question each one of us wishes God would ask, and he asks What is it you want? I'm so pleased with you. What would you like? King Sully says, I'd love wisdom. Wisdom is what I would love. And God was so pleased by his answer that he hooked him up with a depth of wisdom. Like he was probably the individual that walked this earth with absolute wisdom apart from Jesus. One of the wisest people in all of history. Yet, toward the end of his reign, we're paraphrasing from 1 Kings 11, and it's in your notes, by the way. Toward the end of his life, he had 700 wives. Good Lord. 300 concubines, right? And he knew this command from God. In 1 Kings 11, we see that he is remembering what the Lord said to the people of Israel. You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart away after their gods. And Solomon's like, yes, I got it, totally. Then he has a thousand women. And then it says, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. We'll talk about more why he did this in a bit. So we got these men who are pursuing women outside of the covenant. We got these other men who are divorcing their wives to go and do what they think uh, is best, and they're doing it deliberately. In other words, their reason, the reason they're divorcing their wives is solely because they are dissatisfied in their marriage, their hearts have been stirred with poor logic, and then, as if that's not enough, they follow through with that. Like the amount of energy that it takes to conceive this plan, they're following through. Rather than loving their, uh, their wives, lo- uh, loving their families, rather than clinging to the promises of God, they then spend a considerable amount of energy and thought in thinking, you know it would be better? If I divorced my wife, I think that would be really good. I think that'd be really solid. And here's the reason why they're thinking this. Here's that dumb logic. Because they think it will help their status, their significance, and their security. For them, doing this is a social benefit for them. When it comes to Israel, the nation of Israel is small. And so there are all these other nations around Israel that are bigger and tougher. And so these dudes think, you know what? If I divorce my wife and I uh, meet someone else from another nation, another country, man, maybe we can begin to create peace so that they're cool with Israel and maybe we will have influence with them and their families. It's quite literally the same thing Solomon did. He's looking at it from a political perspective. If I could bring peace, you know what, I'll just take a 1,000 women. Like that was the logic, and that's the logic of these dudes. It's a social benefit to them. If that's not enough, they're responding out of what they believe, which is poor theology. I want you to go back up to verse 13. This is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altars with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand, but you say, why does he not? Here it is. They think They're super confident in this plan. They're super confident in this plan that marrying someone who does not worship the God of the Bible will have no effect or no hindrance in their relationship with God. Because, again, they're looking at it with poor logic. They're looking at it from, oh, man, we'll establish some peace. We'll totally secure some kind of benefit between our country and their country. Let's leave our wives. And the other dudes are like, yeah! And then, at the same time, they're getting upset because God is not receiving their offerings and they're tripping out. I'm pleasing you, God. I'm doing all of these things. They're groaning and complaining because God does not and will not bless their plans you need to know that God does not bless your plans unless you're on his plan. So these men are angry, they're frustrated because they're trying to tell God that they're pleasing him and that he needs to bless this awesome plan. You ever done that? I'm gonna do this plan, I'm gonna figure it all out, I'm gonna write this blueprint and then I'm gonna tell God to bless it. That's exactly what we sound like when we do this. And so in verse 14, God responds to them. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless. God, why aren't you blessing my plan? Because you're faithless to your wife. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one? You two are one. I brought you two together. That word one, he's pulling from Genesis 2 where, where uh, it, it writes, uh, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Leave and cleave, right? That's when they will become one flesh. And so God is calling out their faithlessness to their spouse. I'm not going to bless your dumb logic and your dumb plans. Look how far removed your hearts are. Look at where it has taken you practically. And if that's nothing, if, if there's more to that, he's saying, at your wedding, I was actually there when you gave those vows. I'm holding you to the covenant you put down. He continues. So she's your companion and your wife. Did you not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? That the Holy Spirit dwells in you and your wife, and you are trying to rip that apart. You're trying to rip that apart. He continues. I mean, he's just laying it on there. And what was the, God, what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Here it is. These dudes are looking for a good time, not a godly legacy. These dudes are looking for a good time, not for the incoming generations. So in summary, Israelite men are marrying women outside of the covenant community. Israelite men are deliberately divorcing their wives so they can bounce and do their own thing. The irony of all of this is that these women, because of their faulty and dumb logic, are the ones being treated like trash and dismissed. And so how does God feel about divorce? Verse 16. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord God, of Israel covers his garment with violence depending on the translation you have it might read that God hates divorce and that is true here's kind of an expanded version of that translation in the Hebrew it's kind of funky he's saying I hate divorce just as much as I hate it when you sin against one another when you are violent against one another See, the people forgot their covenant with God and their spouse because something or someone else ruled and reigned in their heart apart from God. So what do we do with this? See, rather than turning toward God in our vertical relationship with him, rather than serving and loving one another horizontally, For for Israel, their decisions were selfish as they were trying to cultivate or embrace their individualism. If this was a reality TV show and they'd be interviewing Israel on the side, they'd be saying, I'm just trying to do what I think is best for me. It's about time, after so many years of post-exile, that I chose me. And their decisions are having consequences toward their neighbor, namely their wives, but also the covenant community. So let's step into this further, and let's bring it into light in our day, 2,500 years later. Does any of this still happen today? Yes, absolutely. You, us, we, are not immune to embracing selfishness, and individualism well how do i know that because you and i are sinners it doesn't take topics as strong as these and we're going to get into them in a moment but it doesn't take topics as strong as these to recognize our sinful desire for individualism because for many and this might be you when there's pressure you bounce when there's something you don't like You're the first to complain, and then you bounce. When you're sinned against, you grow embittered, forgetting that you're doing exactly the same thing. Or when you allow shallow, when you embrace shallow theology, and then you expect God to bless your blueprint instead of you aligning to his plan, you get frustrated. Frustrated. In the context of these verses, God explicitly sees marriage as a covenant. Not just practically, but theologically. Going back to the second half of verse 10. Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the what? The contract? No, the covenant of our fathers. How we live out this covenant among one another in community and in our marriages is a reflection of what we believe about God's covenant with us. So let's look at some stuff for today. Here we go. Let's do, let's do dating. Christian, non-Christian. All right? We just looked at the, the Old Testament. The question would be, hey, does this still apply today? If that was in the Old Testament, some uh, might even argue, you know, that was the law, we're under grace. And so... Uh, so then, so then does it apply? Yes, it does. Absolutely applies. Here we go. 1 Corinthians 7, 39. Is it up on the screen? All Oh right. wait. All right, here we go. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, period. Go marry whoever it is you want. It's all about you. Choose you this time. Is that what it says? No. This is where... Grammar and punctuation are amazing. It's comma only in the Lord. The classic one that I've talked to many of you with, 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Man, that just sounds rough, man. Right? Is the righteousness we walk in our own? Oh. No not because we're better it's because we're meant to be repentant what fellowship has light with darkness what accord has christ with Belial uh, it's that's a false god or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever what agreement has the temple of god with idols it sounds just as harsh as the old testament still some might say but what's the big deal we love each other. Let's keep it theological for now. This is a worship problem. The law of prioritization is out of order. God is not at the center. It's either you or the person you're after. The person who does, In this case, it's the person who doesn't know the Lord. We've already heard some of the warnings from the Old Testament. This is A worship problem and if it is a worship problem by that logic the question is who then do you actually serve you see it's one thing to profess your faith it's quite another to practice it so is your faith really at the center still there might be pushback on the claim are you saying that never works when a Christian is dating a non-Christian you tell me it doesn't work You're saying missionary dating doesn't have any fruit, flirt to convert, it don't work, right? I got more, but I'm not going to say them right now. It's already going to be five. All right, here we go. I won't lie, some of that stuff has happened, yeah? I'm 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 not knocking it. Some of that stuff has happened. Let me just caution you with a few things. If you're that person and you're like, oh, it's happened, maybe I could be the answer, as if you're the exception to the rule. Here's the practical part of that. Do you realize how painful that path is? Man, there is praise and amazing uh, work of God on this side. Getting there is really, really painful. Not just for you, but the people who you say you love and are around you. get a little bit more practical what are you at risk of if you do this well you shortchange your faith pursuing someone in this kind of a context means you're going to compromise somewhere so you're going to compromise in who you worship You shortchange your marriage. Marriage is supposed to be, it's meant to be this spiritual union. When Malachi says that he brought them as one, what he is saying is that this is cemented together, and it's supposed to be this spiritual union between man and a wife. And so in this context, well then, who do you turn to when it comes to prayer in the middle of struggle? Who do you turn to when it it comes to edification? Who do you turn to, to to find encouragement? Who do you turn to to confess your sin? Who do, you, who do you turn to when you're the one or they're the one that needs to be rebuked? What are you going to be pointing one another to? You lose a deeper connection of the soul. Let's dive in a little bit deeper. What about children? You shortchange children. Children model themselves on both parents, good or bad. Parents, parenting is challenging already. Amen? All right. Okay. Add to that spiritual formation. So what's your pastoral counsel? Don't do it. It Says it in the Greek. Don't do it. What if you're already married and your spouse is not a Christian? The New Testament is also really clear on this. You don't have the excuse or the reason to leave them or divorce them. Stay married. What we were addressing right now, flirt to convert, that's all dating. In the context of marriage, if your spouse does not know the Lord, stay married. Let me slow down so I can encourage you because I'm like wired. Here it is. Stay married and model Jesus before them. Model Jesus before them by praying for them, by praying for your spouse's salvation. Model Jesus for them through your redemptive conduct. May You will be honoring the Lord in that. And at the same time, you'll be praying that they would come to know Jesus. Listen to the Apostle Peter. In this context, he's addressing specifically wives, but I think the principle could be addressed to uh, a husband and a wife when one of them is not a Christian. Here's what he says. Likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands so that, so that even if some do not obey the Lord or the, the word, they may be won without a word, by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And win them over with your redemptive conduct. Let them see Jesus in the way that you serve them, love them any chance every chance you get pointing to jesus and their need for jesus now let's look at let's look at divorce well if god hates divorce what does the rest of the bible have to say about it look divorce first divorce divorce was never part of god's design for marriage When Malachi uses the phrase to make them one, it's the Hebrew word, as I mentioned earlier, for cementing something that should not be broken or torn apart. Because when and if it is, what happens? It is broken and utterly devastating. Divorce is absolutely devastating. It's a grenade thrown into a marriage. My wife and I have counseled individuals who have come through and out of divorce, and it just feels like we're... Helping them pick up the pieces of utter heartbreak, maybe their own failure, devastation. That's the two things that I want to say. The third one is you ask, well, what does the Bible say, though? The Bible does provide grounds for it. Though it should be the last resort, And it doesn't mean that sinful actions aren't redeemable. It also does not mean that there isn't immediate action taken in some scenarios. But the truth is that sometimes, because we live in a fallen world, and we ourselves are fallen, Christians get divorced. And it's devastating. Jesus points to adultery. Paul points to abandonment. But then you have physical or verbal abuse. You have addiction to drugs and alcohol and other substances. Listen, it takes a ton of discernment to get to that door. And until that door, we're at that door, there's tons of fighting for the marriage. Again, that does not mean that there isn't immediate action taken in many of the scenarios. Like, I've been, like, straight up, I've been in those scenarios where I get a call from the wife because her husband is punching through doors, and she's freaking out, and I call the cops, and I show up, and they're not there yet, and so it's one-on-one with the husband. That doesn't mean that there isn't immediate action taken and stepping in to the destruction that's taken place. These topics are difficult for a number of reasons, and that's exactly what we were talking about last week. That's why we don't skip them. But they're really tough. They're really tough because some of you are going through a difficult season in your marriage where maybe you feel like, I'm at my wit's end. I think think that might be the only option. Or maybe you're just ready to bounce because you're thinking like, I got a plan. And that's rather than persevering, honoring the Lord, walking in obedience. For some of you, you may be just walking through a difficult season. You're single and... uh, Godly men and women aren't stepping up in some way. And so it leads you to be impatient, experience loneliness. That's hard. That stinks. Some of you have had to deal with the devastating consequences of divorce. Experiencing shame. I knew individuals who didn't want to come back to the church, not because they didn't love the church, but because they just thought, or not they just thought, they were just in such shame after the divorce that, man, the, fa- the, 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 the fact that someone or others might want to care for me, I don't deserve that. And so they bounce. Other people who have walked through or lived through divorce have, have embraced lies that have been told about them. They've relived their divorce. If I had just done this differently, he wouldn't have done that. If he would have just done this, I wouldn't have done that. Some people relive their failures of divorce. It's incredibly devastating. And my heart is heavy for those of you who are and have experienced these. Because I find myself praying for you constantly and sometimes getting angry with you. you. And sometimes frustrated. Listen, you have a place here at Storehouse. Look, the whole idea of this text is that Israel is not just faithless toward God in these areas, but one another. I don't want that for us. You have a place here. So what do we do? What is the application? Let's go to the second half of verse 15 and the second half of verse 16. Here's what God says. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Second half of verse 16. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. What do we do? We guard ourselves. How do we do that? All right, since you're taking notes, examine yourself first. Paul says, examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. That's not easy. This is Israel, who has history and glory on their side, and their posture and action is one of faithlessness. You would think that they didn't know God. Examine your heart. Examine the depth of your heart. Is there sin that you need to put on the table? Is there someone you need to talk to and confess your sin to? Examine your heart. Examine where you are at with God. Ask God questions. Lord, is there sin in my heart? Are there things that I'm not actually addressing? Number two, get in community. This isn't a plug for CG, but it is. Get in a CG, right? confess your sin to one another and praying for one another. And you're like, man, community group, it's awkward and it's weird because not everybody knows one another. Community is messy because you, along with them, are sinners and you're trying to figure out as you look to a perfect God, it's going to be messy. But it is so fruitful. Biblical community or personal transformation is the fruit of biblical community. Yeah, I know, it's messy, and it's awkward when only one person confesses their sin, and then that one person asks that one question, and nobody says anything, so you sit in this pool of hot tub awkwardness. I get it, you're not the only one in a CG. (laughs) It's messy. It's supposed to be. It's gonna be, but it is ever so fruitful and rewarding. Three. Repent of your sin. Repent of your sin. Some of you are walking in habitual sin. I don't know. Maybe it's porn. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's deep, profound apathy. Because you just want to pursue some kind of individualistic release. The author of Hebrews says it this way Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. He's writing to the church. Those of you who are married, you're going to be doing this, examining yourselves, getting in community, repenting of your sin. Are you like the one that just throw everything under the rug and just kind of let the tension build up until you blow up? And now all of a sudden you got sin, right? Or are you going to point one another to the Lord? And with that being said, we're, 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 we're coming to a close, maybe. Here's a warning for those of you who are in Christian relationships and you're married or you're not married. And maybe this wasn't your heart, I'm just putting it out there. It's easy to say, man, I'm so glad I'm dating a Christian. Okay, listen. Just because you're dating a Christian doesn't mean your heart is good. There's a difference between godly and good. As a result, some of you need to get your heart in order because of Because your sin of apathy and idolatry is just as deep as Israel's, and you profane the covenant the Lord has made with you. Listen, the idea of this passage is that the sin of individuals thinking that God would still bless them has fallen and leaked out into the rest of the community. The accusation did not have to be these two examples. The point is that their sin is beginning to impact the rest of the community. Your sin is never private. And here's the irony and here's the tragic reality of Israel's faithless posture towards God. We do exactly the same thing. But God doesn't divorce us. In other words, everything that Israel is doing, we do. We turn our heads and our hearts and our hands to idol worship. We replace God with someone or something that we think is better and greater all of the time. Someone or something that has really captivated our hearts. Someone or something that we worship by buying into this relationship and making investments and deposits. And then, not only are we disappointed and restless because God won't bless our plans, we turn towards other things and other people that aren't going to deliver what they promise anyway. See, the problem with that reality TV show is that they pair people who cannot and will not give up their individualism in marriage because to them it's not a covenant, it's a contract, a business deal, something that can be undone and voided, something that when they don't like it, they can bounce, something when it gets difficult, they can leave. Church, do not conform yourself to the world of reality TV or the world itself. See, the irony here is that we daily try to run from God. And if there is anyone who should be saying, you know what, we're getting a divorce, it's God. He's the one who should be saying that. Because we are utterly faithless. But praise be to God that he is not like us. His promise is a covenant, not a contract. And his covenant is unconditional. He has demonstrated it to Israel, and he has demonstrated it to us, his church, through the covenant of his grace, lovingly, lavishly, pouring out his grace onto you to remind us of his love Remember week one, I told you this, uh, verses one through five, God opens up with, I have loved you. Before he brings about conviction, he reminds them of his covenant. I have loved you. In spite of our sin, God offers himself. He offers himself to us in the costliest of ways. And that is in the sending of Jesus. (laughs) Listen to the theologian Ian Duguid. Here's what he writes. The Father takes the scarlet evidence of our multitudinous sins and shortcomings and covers it with the pure white garments of His Son's perfect obedience. What is more, He promised to be at work in us by His Spirit, delighting in whatever small progress we make and promising to complete His good work in us on the last day. God is so rich in mercy and grace that in sending Jesus into our to enter into our world in our space, He lived the life that we cannot live. He took responsibility for the mess that we created, and on the cross, He died in our place and for our sin, redeeming us not only from the bondage of our sin, but imparting His righteousness onto us. Why is this amazing? Because you didn't earn it. And you can't lose it. Because it's been a gift to you. And he paid with the best kind of money. His very own blood. Peter says it this way. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things, such as silver or gold. But with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We looked at that last week. He is the perfect sacrifice. Though we are faithless, God is faithful. Therefore, let us love and serve one another with kindness and repentance. Let us worship loudly today because it is by grace that we sit here to remember the work and promises of Jesus. Let the grace and mercy of Jesus lead you to a renewed gratitude to your love for God, whose mercies are new every morning and whose compassion and faithfulness never comes to an end. So Christian, where are you, faith- where are you faithless and forgetful? Look to Jesus. Jesus. By grace, move toward repentance. By grace, cry out to God. By grace, look to Jesus. By grace, remember his work and promise for you. And if you're not a Christian, love that you're here. Thank you for being here. You didn't have to be, but God ordained it, so that's even better. I don't know what you think about covenants, but here's what I can tell you. The God of the Bible takes them very, very seriously, and he sees them through. The church can look back and testify, however, for those outside of his covenant. You stand condemned. You are not right with God, but separated from God. Yet the person and work of Jesus is what sets all of this apart. God has made a way for you to be reconciled to him through faith in Jesus. Look to Jesus. Confess your sin and repent It's not that Christians are great. We just saw some pretty horrible things. It's not that Christians are great. Consider the text. It is that we have a faithful and great God who is. Church, God's faithfulness in our faithlessness is a testimony of his grace and mercy. Let's pray. Father, we end our time by looking to Jesus. It is through and by Jesus that we are reconciled to you. To this, we can be assured of your love, your mercy, and your grace for us. Often, we attribute our own emotions to your love but truthfully your love is vastly different from ours and we praise you for that your love for us reminds us it reminds us that we cannot out your grace therefore father forgive us for our faithless posture when we turn away from you forgive us of our forgetful hearts when we do not love or serve one another well, whether it's in our marriage, our friendships, our our community groups, not one of us here is with excuse or without excuse. Lord, by your strength, by your grace, strengthen us to consistently and deliberately look to affection over our apathy by your grace, soften our hearts toward others so that we would worship you freely. Father, I have brothers and sisters here today who are hurting. These topics are tough. They're hurting because their marriage is in need of strengthening. And and so God, I ask that you would strengthen and restore their marriage. There are some who are married to a spouse who who doesn't know you. Lord, Lord, would you save them today? Would you save them for your glory and their good? Would you redeem them? Lord, there are some who have walked through the pain of divorce. God, would you assure them of your grace and mercy? Would you assure them of who you say they are?